Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our executive pastor, Pastor Brandon McPherson, with this week's sermon. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to get ready to jump back into Mark. Before we do, I want to ask a couple of questions uh, to you. Just, just rhetorical questions. Just think on it. First one would be, are you stressed? Just, just think on that. And uh, the, the next question goes along with it. Like, what has you stressed? How are you responding to stress? According to the American Psychology Association, only 40% of Americans categorize themselves as being in a good mental state. That would mean that 60% of us would say that money, work, family, relationships, past pain, and future uncertainty have us overly stressed. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've come into this place and the week has worn you out. Maybe even this morning has worn you out. I know those with kids, especially Sunday mornings, can be a, a testing of our marriage, right? Uh, it can be a, a difficult time. Um, of course, today isn't a sermon about how just simply you can be less stressful. We, we don't, I'm not going to preach like that. There are certainly many of resources online that you can find, Christian and secular, that will help you in areas of stress and how to plan your life and how to be more resourceful. But today we're going to look at what I would say is undoubtedly the most stressful moment in Jesus' earthly walk. We're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane here in just a moment in our text. And normally we go straight into our text for the day, and I'll have you stand in just a moment. Before I do, I want Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 to kind of be just an overarching scripture that we're just going to look, have that through the frame in which we see the rest of today's sermon. Maybe you know the scripture, Hebrews 14, 15, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So I want us to keep that perspective and look through that lens as we cover our text today, that while Jesus was here on this earth, he is able to or was able to sympathize in every single aspect that you and I suffer and are tempted in, and yet he did it without sin. Praise God that we have a perfect high priest. And so we're going to look over this and how Jesus was, uh, his whole being was profoundly shaken as he began to feel the weight of his coming suffering. As has been mentioned, we've spent the last several weeks going through his passion and, and dealing with uh, his upcoming betrayal and dealing with the arrest that's going to take place and today in Gethsemane, and then we'll cover seeing more betrayal and, of course, his uh, day in court and ultimately his crucifixion and then resurrection. So find uh, with me Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at that text, beginning in verse 32. If you would, just stand with me for one moment as we honor the reading of God's Word today. Uh, Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. And they went to a place 
place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We come to it today humbly and grateful, Lord, knowing that you, Jesus, are our high priest, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you for your perfect word. We stand in acknowledging its infallibility, its perfection, its source of strength in life. Be with us today as we hear and receive, and not only hear and receive, but do. We thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So you don't have to be a, a scholar to really pick up on the fact that Jesus is in total anguish at this moment. You see, and the other Gospels will mention it as well, that Jesus is walking alongside James and John and Peter, and he's in this garden. And I would imagine that there was something that was sparking in conversation that was really beginning to torment Jesus. Now, of course, we know and we've covered uh, through the institution of the, the Lord's Supper and through that Passover moment, we know that Jesus knows what's right there in front of him. And he is really deeply wrestling with it. And he's tried to be very clear with his disciples and letting them know that this moment is about to happen. And you kind of get a sense throughout and even in verses to follow that we'll cover in weeks to come that the disciples are in a bit of denial they're still, they're still wrestling with the idea of how do we get Jesus out of this situation? How do we get him from this place? I mean, he seems really convinced that this has to be the option. Surely there must be another way. In fact, our world says that quite often. Surely Jesus isn't the only way. Surely there's other ways. Surely there's another way to go about this. I mean, surely that it's not just that inclusive, that it is through Christ alone. Surely. And so we see that Jesus knows that there is no other way. I mean, he even is sitting there in the garden praying to God and saying, like, God, if there is another way. I mean, even God is, even Jesus himself is wrestling with the very thing that the disciples wrestled with, and yet he doesn't sin in that wrestling. We see that he prays and has a desire for this moment to pass by him, but of course knowing that whatever God's will might be, that's where he wants to be himself. 
And so we see what Jesus is stressed over. I like what Pastor Greg mentioned last week, that he knew the betrayal was coming, and he knew it was coming from those who were closest with him. He took from his disciples three of his closest, Peter, James, and John, and said, you guys come with me, go in a little bit deeper with me. And even from that deepness in the garden, he had to then separate himself even further. Jesus in this moment undoubtedly faced loneliness. I mean, he, I know that Jesus wanted so badly for those men to be committed. He wanted them so badly to feel that way or to actually act on the way that they were claiming to have felt. And so we see this despair that Jesus finds himself in. When I think... To, about ourselves as I ask the, the question, are you stressed? I mean, we, when we face stress in our own lives, what often happens is we, are, we base our stress off of what, what we're expecting to take place. Whether it be wrong or right, we have maybe upcoming social interactions that stress you out. This is probably my number one stressor is just being in life, right? Just communicating with others is as simple as it might be for others, like sitting down to have a meeting with someone or a phone call like heightens my stress levels. I, I can't really explain it. If you understand, then you understand, right? But you can think of a scenario that you are anticipating and having that anxiousness, that feeling of stress that this could either go very well or it could go very poorly. It's a great feeling when, you're, when you are stressed. Well, it's not a great feeling when you're stressed, but once you come through that moment that you had stressed about and you realize, wow, like, I lived, <laughs> right? I made it through that conversation. Like, I, maybe I wasn't able to answer all the questions, but I was able to, like, be myself, and that amount of honesty seemed well, and there was grace that took place. God brings us through things, even when we are stressed and overwhelmed. Kelsey, my wife, she has to say to me often <laughs> at times, Brandon, you're overreacting. You're thinking too much about this. We overreact in, in many different ways. In fact, the scripture is filled with men and women who overreacted, who did things, went, took things too far. They were overreacting in their stress they overreacted with their desires. They overreacted with their anger, with their pride. Whatever it might be, overreacting can often lead us to sin. And so there is stress in our lives when we have these heightened expectations. And when there is a high dependency on ourselves and our ability to control a certain situation, then we often lose sight of God's promises. And we lose sight that He is already present in our future circumstances. That's what's amazing. Uh, Dale and I were sitting down uh, this Friday enjoying a meal together and listening to some great music, and we were just talking about the, the omnipresence of the Lord. I mean, have you really spent time reflecting on that characteristic of our, of our God that he not only exists in who you were in the past, he exists where you are today, and he exists with you in the future. He is not bound by time, by dimension, but that he is the omnipresent God. And so when we become overburdened with stress, it's often a heightened dependency on ourselves 
and a losing sight of what God has promised to us. God has said that he is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever, right? That he is never going to change. That the same God that we can rightly proclaim today that he is for us and not against us, that he is loving, that he is sovereign, that is who he will be still tomorrow. And so like I've mentioned Lack of faith can often produce in us the stress that we are feeling, feeling in any given situation. And so that is, that is true of us. However, that is not true of Jesus in this garden. He is not stressing due to lack of faith. He isn't, he isn't sinning in this moment. He isn't going too far. He isn't becoming self-absorbed. He isn't just thinking about the pain. Jesus isn't stressed in the ways that you and I would. He does know what's going to happen. He knows precisely how it's going to play out. He knows who's going to betray him, how he'll be arrested. He knows he's going to have to take a time out to heal someone's ear, right? Because Peter's going to do what Peter does. And he's going to have to take moments to go through this process in which he knows he's about to submit his life to. And so we see in our text that Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life that he really dreaded. And it wasn't just this cruel death. Some, I've heard people poke fun at, at Jesus' death um, and, and say that, you know, well, you know, yeah, he died. He died for, for people, but people die for people all the time, don't they? I mean, there are amazingly brave men and women that have fought for this country and have died as a sacrifice, and we're grateful for them. But we're not eternally grateful. Well, why? What's the distinction? I mean, because death doesn't just solve the problem. This is why the, the garden is imperative, because we have to see that this wasn't just a man that went to a cross, but this was something far greater. We just sang about it, the man of sorrows, the perfect lamb. There's something greater that takes place. And so we see that he is not dealing with the anxiety of a cruel death, though it had to have been on his mind, he, but he knew he would rise again. What he's dealing with is the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be God forsaken. He had never experienced that. He had never experienced what it would be like for God to forsake him. He had walked in absolute perfect, in absolute perfection from the moment of his birth. There was never error. There was never a backsliding moment. There was never a lack of faith. And Jesus knew that he was about to enter into a moment of God forsakenness. And he felt like he could not live without that. That life was not worth living without the consciousness of his father's love for him. What a, what a convicting statement. I mean, when I, I mean I, as I'm writing this sermon, I'm feeling, you know, preached at myself. Like, God, do I long so much for your presence. That the thought of having a moment of consciousness without your love would draw me to torment. That's a convicting question. And I, I would say with certainty, all of us fail in this category. In our sinfulness, there are moments that we can be comforted by the desires of this world. Not so for Jesus. There was nothing of this world that would bring him comfort. And he knew this. 
Look at our text again and when, in uh, verse 32, and when uh, they went into the place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to, great, be, uh, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Like was mentioned again last week, Jesus goes to the most likely place for him to be, right? Greg said this, like it was really no surprise that he would go to the place that he would often go to. Jesus didn't go into hiding. He went to the place that he found comfort, that he would go in and draw near to the Lord. He went there often for fellowship. And it's, again, convicting. Like when, when we talk about people on this earth who get their last moments, right? We'll maybe talk about a prisoner who receives their last meal or, the, you know, someone's last dying words. And you can go down fun Google searches of, you know, what were, the, what were famous last words of famous people? And some things are, you know, terrifyingly sad and others are funny and some are heartbreaking, whatever. I mean, we might all want or desire to have a moment in our lives where we feel like it's about to come to an end. And we'll get that little pocket of time where maybe we can gather our, our wife and our children and we can say the things that we've, that's been on our heart for, for years and we get that moment of intimacy with those that we love. And here in Jesus' last moment, he wants nothing but the presence of the Father. I mean, all those other things, he, you know, we might would say, well, I've got to, before I go, like, I've got to get just one more, you know, crunch wrap supreme, you know, just before I leave this earth, I just, I got to, or I got to, I got to make sure that I just catch one more ball game. You know, I got, I got to make sure that I do this last thing. I got, I got to make sure that I just enjoy this last moment. And Jesus knows his time is to end. And he says, I want more of what I've already had. I want more of what I know is going to be for all eternity. I want more of the presence of my Father. The title for this sermon is Lessons in the Garden. And I think one lesson that we, we pull from this is that there needs to be, and we see the example in our Savior, a desire for prayer and fellowship with the Father. As believers, we should have a desire for prayer and fellowship with the Father. We love fellowship with one another. In fact, we can, we can muscle up church event after church event that is primarily focused on nothing but fellowship. And we'll even throw prayer in at times before a meal of our fellowship. But the word convince, convicts, convicts us and Jesus shows us that a desire for prayer and a desire for fellowship with the Father far exceeds the fellowship that we even draw from in one another. And so he's walking and he's talking with Peter, James, and John, but this isn't cutting it. There is, in Jesus' mind, no substitute for prayer. And again, convicting, because when we have issues or we have a dilemma or we have a, a crisis, what we most often do, and, and there's biblical grounds for that, but most often we run to one another. And again, there's healing in that. There's healing in when we confess our sins to one another, and there should be trust amongst the saints. But before that, before we run to one another, remember there is no substitute for prayer. 
And I, I love that some of you reach out to, to us and myself and Pastor Greg. Like, we love it. We love to, to hear, and I know this sounds weird, but like, hear your problems, right? Because we want to help in any way or give scripture or give, you know, wisdom, whatever it is that we might be able to help. But I can promise you that our sources do not go beyond your sources, <laughs> We don't have greater connections. We aren't your priest. We aren't your mediator. We aren't here to be a substitute for your prayer life. Growing up, my uh, parents were, they were pretty strict about what we were allowed to watch, what we weren't allowed to watch. We, uh, I, I grew up, uh, you know, having watched all of the Little House on the Prairie episodes. Uh, I grew up watching the Waltons and Andy Griffith, and uh, we would, if it were in color, it was exciting, because it didn't seem to happen very often, right? Uh, and so we just grew up, you know, watching other kids enjoy Ninja Turtles, right? Is there, was there anyone else that grew up like that? I mean, just, uh, okay, good, all right, there's three of us, all right, great. Uh, well, I say that to say that uh, I remember watching a movie that my mother had deemed too scary for us. And I don't know exactly how it came about. I don't, know how, I don't think that we like snuck it in. I would have had no way of, of doing that. Maybe you've seen it. it uh, there involves a, a witch and some flying monkeys that Dorothy and her three new friends encounter on their way to Oz, right? Uh, the Wizard of Oz. I wasn't allowed to watch it. It was too scary. And I remember watching it and being like, what? <laughs> like, this is scary? Uh, however, it became a... Uh, you know, it was a, a scandalous movie in my home, and so I, it was the start of my love for horror, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> had no idea that it fell into that genre, but for my house, it did. But, you know, I was thinking about that, and the ending of that movie is always a little bit of a letdown. I don't, I'm going to spoil it. You've had since 1938 to watch this movie, okay? If you haven't seen it by now, like, sorry. It's been 83 years. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the ending is always a little bit of a, a letdown, and I think it's meant to be. You, you, if you remember that the characters, they go and they see the great and powerful Oz that wasn't all that great and powerful, right? The man behind the curtain was not as impressive as the persona, persona that he was exemplifying throughout the city. And then you realize that he's also a little bit of a fraud, right? Once they meet him. And if you also might remember, he gives the scarecrow, I remember seeing this, he gives the scarecrow a certificate, he gives the tin man a clock, and he gives the lion a, a medal, <laughs> right? And you're just like, man, what a bummer. Like, they have spent their entire journey, and he just gives them stuff that seems meaningless and was meaningless. The whole movie is about characters that want to be in the presence of this Oz because maybe they can help, it can help them out in their situations, but it was a bit of a letdown, this is not the way that we approach prayer. We don't, we don't approach prayer as a, as a journey to get us to a place where we can finally get close enough to the presence of the Lord where he can give us the things, right? The church often, misguided churches, preach sermons far more closely related to the Wizard of Oz than they ever would Scripture, because the contrast is there. I mean, these people, they come and they receive these gifts, and in turn, the Oz just basically tells them that those gifts were already inside of you. Our culture loves that. Our culture loves be the best version of you, or there, you are enough, or there's enough in you. 
We just got to pull it out. All you need is a certificate that shows that that was already inside of you. This is not the gospel. We often go to God in prayer like, God, here is my checklist. Thanks. Like, get back with me. But in this moment, in the garden, Jesus is not seeking the Lord for the reason of escape. He isn't just stressed out nearly, he isn't just stressed out because of the future suffering that he is about to endure. But again, it is that he will be outside the Father's presence. He is about to be emptied. Prayer takes us from our own situation and places us in the presence of the Lord. If you don't believe me, look in Romans chapter 12. Verse 12, it says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. That's important. Added, you know, something added there at the end that, yes, we love to rejoice in our hope, and we long to be patient in our tribulation. But Paul reminds us it comes through being consistent and being in constant prayer. We're reminded again in Philippians 4, Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus knew that this time that he was about to endure would take him from the, from the presence of the Lord that gave him peace that gave him hope, that gave him the love that he felt for others, he was going to be taken out of it and he would feel that distance, the anguish that he was anticipating. So let me ask you, do you long to be in the presence of the Lord? Do you long to be in his presence? Or do you just long to be in his presence for the sake of his things? Because he has things. He has good things. In fact, every good thing comes from the Father. It's been asked before, if all that Jesus promised you in heaven was himself, was himself would you still want to go? If all that we got when we got to heaven was Jesus standing before us in all of his glory, do you still want to be there? Do you long to be in the presence of our Lord. Jesus did. It's clear. He was anguished because of the absence of that present. He was presence that he was about to endure. Look again at our text. This is the, the, the next lesson that we see is this desire to submit to the Father. Verse 35. And going a little bit farther, he fell onto the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I think it's, it's important to note that it's not necessarily wrong for us to ask for something in which God does not intend to do. Okay? It's, it's not necessarily wrong for us to ask for something that God does not intend us to do. So long as our hearts are willing and prepared to submit to his will, if it's outside of our requests. If, if you're praying about a, a future spouse and that spouse comes, I mean, not if you're married. You shouldn't be praying for a future spouse if you're married. But if you are single and praying for a future spouse, right? And, and God just, you can see clearly says no, then trust his will. 
If you feel that all of the, everything looks perfect and, and the right move is to be made and all the signs are pointing toward, you know, the, the, there's, not, there's no obstacles in your way, but God says, no, trust his will. And so Jesus asks this very lonely question, God, Abba, Father, you are able to do everything, he says. All things are possible through you. And then he says, Lord, remove this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. The cup has been spoken about before, even in the book of Mark. We, we covered this a while back, Mark chapter 10, verse 38. Jesus said to them, his disciples, that you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism in which I am being baptized? He, Jesus, in this moment, his disciples come to him and say, they're arguing. Do you remember over who's going to sit where in, in heaven with Jesus? And Jesus says, you guys have no clue the cup that I'm about to drink. The cup represents God's wrath. God's judgment. And we find this illustration pulled throughout Scripture that drinking it meant shame before men and alienation from God. And Jesus knew this. He knew the alienation that he was about to endure. And in his perfect humanity, he despised it. Let's be reminded again of Another familiar scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything within him despised the shame and the guilt that he was about to absorb. I want you to, to, to think, this is certainly rhetorical again, no response necessary, I want you to think of the, the history of your life and for a moment, maybe just pull out one or two things that are just absolutely shameful things that you have done, participated in, whatever it might be. The things that you, if you could go back 10 times out of 10, you would have done differently. Maybe you betrayed someone. Maybe you did something. You made a decision that impacted maybe not just your life, but the lives of many others. And Jesus absorbs that sin. Not just the sin that had already taken place, not just David with Bathsheba, not just Jonah in his bitterness, not just Peter in the garden that's going to come in a few more verses, but you today, 2022, your actions, he absorbed. Everything within him despised the shame and the guilt and yet he was not willing to disobey the Father. Three times we see in other uh, accounts in, of this story in other parts of the Gospels, three times we see that Jesus asks God, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass by me. If there's any other way. It's interesting how Jesus goes to the garden and goes, and, and goes knowing that he's going to have to absorb this sin. Sin is a choice. I don't, I, I, that shouldn't feel sca scandalous to say, but it, I don't know, it seems that way. Sin is a choice. Romans one twenty one says that for although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or uh, as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Again in Romans 1, uh, 24, therefore God gave them up to their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator I'm sorry, the creation, yeah, I'm sorry, worshiped and served the creator rather than, uh, the creature rather than the creator. It's interesting, like I said, that Jesus goes into the garden. It was the garden, do you remember, where it all began. It's the garden where we see man and woman who are there, and the enemy then convinces them that God is trying to rob them. He's trying to rob you of, of knowledge. He's trying to rob you of good things. He's trying to rob you of the pleasure If you are here today and you do not know Jesus as Savior, let me tell you, the enemy has convinced you of the very thing that he convinced Adam and Eve of in the first garden. He has. He's convinced you that the pleasures of this world are enough. That if I could just have this, or if I could just make this, or if I could just get this. If you do not know Jesus as Savior and you're sitting in this room, I guarantee you, your thought is, what is the next thing? Aren't you, don't you feel that battle? And for those of us that are saved, we still wrestle with that. God, what's the next thing that, that can just happen that can like fulfill me? I've done this thing and that, that's past. Like, what's the next thing? And then we, we get to that place and it's a letdown. And then we go into the next thing. We just move, if you will, garden to garden, just wanting, just believing the next deception. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's just God. Like he, you know, you can, you can lower that. You don't have to do that. That's, that's not what he said. That's not what he meant. What lies have you exchanged for truth? What does the enemy whisper to you that you know is false? I truly believe that Adam and Eve knew it was false. I, I think they did. But they were lied to. Jesus comes and he, I love that the, when Jesus becomes on, comes on the scene, the, the way that death is spoken about from the point of Jesus on takes on an entirely new life to it. We see in, in the Old Testament, death is there, and it is often. And people come, and they have to bring a, a live animal to a place and kill it, and death is just there. And you see death being uh, portrayed throughout war and throughout famine and all sorts of heinous things. And then Jesus comes, and he reminds us in John ten ten. Remember, he says that the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And then Jesus offers two things. He says, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. I mean, he doesn't even say, like, I've come to give you life and an easy death. No, no, no. He says, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. This is what frustrated the, the leaders with Paul, is that when they would ask, where they would threaten Paul with his life, he would just be like, well, death, you know, death doesn't, it's not going to sting me. Like, to live, as Christ, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Like, this was Paul's, it had to have been so frustrating to be a torturer of the apostle Paul. It's like, man, we hit this guy, and the harder we hit him, the closer he's getting to his glory, right? You cannot threaten a Christian with death. 
My kids know that the worst thing that could happen in a storm is that we meet Jesus today, <laughs> right? I mean, we're, maybe that's too transparent with your kids, but we go there because <laughs> my kids ask a lot of questions. And I just say, look, the worst thing that can happen is that we are standing in front of Abba Father, <laughs> right? But the enemy will convince us and has convinced us quite often that this life is all that there is. So if you're sitting at home and you're obsessing over uh, credit score and debt-to-income ratio and, and you're obsessing over your tax bracket and you're obsessing over the clothes that you're going to wear or the car that you're hoping to purchase, like I'm not saying in and of themselves like th- things should be stewarded well and I don't think there's anything wrong with enjoying things. But it's not the ultimate thing. And the enemy will convince us that our legacy is all that matters what you can pass on. Oh, well, you can't pass on anything, fill in the blank. So Jesus knew that this would require obedience. The scripture tells us obedience is better than sacrifice. I would say, in addition, obedience sometimes is sacrifice. Sometimes we do have to lay down things that we genuinely find pleasure in. This brings me to my, the final lesson that, that we can draw from. Certainly there are more, but we see not only this obedience, this desire that Jesus has, but he has obedience despite those around him. Look again at verse 37 in our text, and he, he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you, may not, that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, <clears throat> were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus, this would be an understatement, Jesus is extremely disappointed in the response of his disciples. As I was listening again to Pastor Greg's sermon this past Sunday, a really gripping point that he made was using the illustration of his commitment to his wife. And if he were to make that commitment so bold and strong, I'll be committed to you forever. But she knew without a shadow of a doubt that that wasn't true, the torment that she would feel. And we see that Jesus is so disappointed He says, guys, I'm going to go and pray for an hour. I just need you to to stand and watch. Yet he knew he was going to be betrayed. And still, Jesus remains faithful. Even when his heart was breaking. Let me ask you this. Does disappointment in others hold you back? Does, does, does failures from others allow you or hold you back from Jesus? 
I, just with being in the position that I find myself, I sit down with people quite often, and it seems like more recent, or more here recently, those that have been hurt by the church, those who have come and sat in services much like this one and have sat and watched people raise their hands to worship and heard God's word proclaimed, and yet been, been deeply hurt by those that call themselves believers. I want to, if that's you, I want to just say that there is healing for you. I, don't, I do not promise a perfect church. I don't, we don't promise perfect people, right? But we certainly promise a perfect Savior who knows what it's like to be hurt by those who are closest to him. Jesus remained faithful even when his heart was breaking, when the cup was full of bitterness and his closest companions were too weak, he was not. So when I, when I remind you or ask you to remind yourself today of the suffering that you have done, the, the, the heinous, shameful things that you have done in your past, the weakness that we exhibit, Jesus is enough. If you've been hurt by those around you or even those in the church, let me say that Jesus is enough. Don't allow others to hold you back. Don't allow, don't allow even a, a spouse to hold you back from spiritual growth. Don't allow uh, those in the church to hold you back. Don't allow anything to come in the way of you longing for the presence of the Lord because Jesus had his closest companions and said, I need for eight of you to stay back. I'm taking three of you with me and we're going to go into this place. And he had to go even a little bit further knowing that they would betray him, but nothing would stop Jesus from pursuing the presence of the Lord. The church is not the place that has all the answers. That's, the world misjudges it from that aspect. When you come in here, you will be surprised to maybe ask myself or Pastor Greg a question. You might be surprised when sometimes we say, I don't know. I don't know. Let's go to the scripture. Let's find out. That's a great question. We don't pretend to know it all. We recognize that we don't know it all. The church is not a place to come. It's not even a place to come and serve primarily. The church is a place that we gather and to first be served. And by that, I mean that we would be served by the holy God of Scripture that offers His Son as a substitute for all that you have to offer. God says, I'm going to give you this perfect son who was weeping in the garden, so stressed that he began to perspire blood, that he is stressed by the weight that he is going to endure by being disconnected to, from me for your sake. And he says, he's going to take every single thing that you have to offer and give that to you in exchange. And you might would say, well, what do I have to offer? Well, I'm glad you asked. Nothing. And in fact, if anything, your sin, that is it. We say week after week that when you come to the table, you don't bring anything. We don't ask you to put your cell phone up here in exchange. We don't ask you to put your wallet up here in exchange. We don't ask for you to put anything. But come humbly, recognizing the great exchange, the scandalous exchange 
I mentioned Friday night, I was hanging out with Dale. Not only that, I was hanging out with, uh, Ben was playing some music and spent, I don't know, maybe an hour talking with his mom. We, we sat and listened to her testimony, and I cannot even begin to tell you how blessed we were. Me and Dale just sitting there, I mean, tears just welling up in our eyes while we're just sitting in this pub listening to Ben play some awesome music. And we're just having this amazing encounter with this sister in Christ who was saved well beyond our life. And she says, she said this to us. She said, Brandon, Dale, she said, I was once a monster. And she said, but God killed that monster. I want to just, I guess, say to you today that if you are sitting here and you feel like you have been an absolute monster, or that you would say, that is me, like I am a monster, I want you to know that there is nothing, there is no sin that can outweigh the scandalous grace that Christ Jesus offers us. That he sat in a garden and he said, God, I don't want to be disconnected from you, but for the sake of my people, not my will, but your will, God. Some sermons might go like this, me saying, now it's time for you to go to the garden, the garden of Gethsemane in your own life. No. You don't, we don't have to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. The gar- Gethsemane was unique. We do not go through our own Gethsemane because Jesus has done that for us. But we must learn to place our feet in the footsteps of faithfulness in which he planted there on our behalf. Hear me when I say this. Gethsemane was hell for Jesus. But I am so thankful that he went through it. Because if there were no Gethsemane, then there is no Calvary. And if there is no Calvary, then there is no empty tomb. And if there is no empty tomb, then there is only hell that awaits us. And rightfully so. And you might sit here today and say, but, 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 but Brandon, I'm stressed. <laughs> but I'm anxious. But I'm overworked. But I'm dealing with addiction. But I'm dealing with sin. You don't understand the friends that I have and the, the social circle that I'll have to break if I follow him. You won't understand the sacrifice. And we can line up all of these buts and give this reason as to why we can't do it. But I've been, maybe even you felt like you've been asleep in the garden. Let me finish by reading this scripture to us today. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and you have been raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And listen to this, for by grace you have been saved by or through faith, and this is not your own doing, but it is a gift from God. Receive this gift today.
Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.